This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 30th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard. In this week's show, David Grimm shares some of the most interesting online news stories, and then we hear from science correspondent Lizzie Wade about the origins of the incredible biodiversity in the Amazon basin. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. In the media, life in space is often depicted aboard gleaming, futuristic spacecraft, with occupants wearing perfectly tailored fashions, suiting the galactic explorers of the future. But life aboard the International Space Station is much more, shall we say, rustic. It's small and cramped and utilitarian. Another thing that doesn't fit with Hollywood's vision? Germs. In our first story, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory has used DNA sequencing to analyze an air filter and vacuum cleaner bags from the space station for bacteria and fungi. What did they find lurking about the space station, Dave? Well, uh, Suzanne, what they found was a lot of what are called actinobacteria, which are bacteria that can be a problem for people, especially if these people are immunocompromised. They can they can cause some health problems. And in fact, they actually found a lot of other bacteria and fungi as well. If you go to the site, you can actually see a chart of everything that they found that was sort of lurking on the ISS. Okay, so they've looked for microbes before on the space station, but it sounds like they've found a lot more now. What was special about the DNA sequencers that they used for this project? They use something what they call deep sequencing machines, which are really better able to assess the diversity and the abundance of the organisms than our traditional techniques. And they also actually only try to focus on those organisms that were intact to make sure that any organisms they were picking up were still viable, that they didn't have maybe, for example, broken cell walls that would have prevented them from actually being alive and then uh, as a consequence infecting people. And so they're really able to sort of hone in on those organisms that could potentially cause problems for people. Interesting. Now, the space station's payload is required to pass through NASA's clean rooms before going into space. Where do these microbes they found come from, Dave? 
Well, you know, we can make things as clean as we want on Earth and ship them up to the International Space Station in a relatively pristine state. But the problem is that we've got a lot of people living up there on the ISS. I think there's about six people up there right now. And people come with their own microbes, especially on their skin. And so as these people are spending time on the ISS, sometimes up to six months at a time, they're shedding a lot of these microbes into their environment. And because this is a closed environment, there's really no ventilation, because you really wouldn't want to get ventilation from space. These microbes just start to accumulate over time. And that's been the concern that if you have these potentially dangerous microbes, could enough of them accumulate that they would cause problems for the humans on board the ISS. Okay, and the ISS is fairly close to home, but are they using this to kind of look ahead to future space missions? And what would NASA and other agencies have to do to kind of make it possible to to go on long missions, say, to Mars, to kind of keep this in check as they go? Right, we're talking about missions that could last several months or even years these microbes become much more of a concern. And so the researchers really think that NASA needs to develop something like an automated biosensor that would alert the crew when potentially pathogens are getting to dangerous levels and obviously give them ways to get rid of them. Next, during the Pleistocene epoch, North America was the playground of giant ground sloths, mammoths, and mastodons. Even their babies were gigantic. So conventional wisdom used to be that ancient predators like lions, wolves, and saber-toothed cats wouldn't have bothered with such large prey. But researchers have painstakingly analyzed a variety of different evidence and have come to a different conclusion. What did they look at, Dave? Well, they were really looking at a lot of the animals that lived around the Pleistocene epoch, as you said, Suzanne. This is a period of time that was somewhere between about 12,000 to 2.5 million years ago. And the first thing they really had to figure out was, well, how big were both the carnivores and the herbivores around this time? So they actually analyzed a lot of museum specimens to get the relative sizes of these animals. And then they wanted to figure out, well, is it possible that saber-toothed cats may have gone after, for example, mammoths? And for that, they looked at the hunting behavior of a lot of modern carnivores like lions and tigers hunting alone and in groups. And they actually spent several years on this trying to sort of get at the dynamics of just how carnivores attack predators, especially large predators. And the final thing they did was they said, well, you know, it's probable that these predators weren't attacking full-grown mammoths and mastodons, but maybe they were attacking juveniles. And would there have been a window of time where a juvenile would have been small enough to make it vulnerable to these predators and yet be spending enough time away from its parents during this period of kind of being small that it actually could have been attacked. Because obviously a carnivore is probably not going to go after a juvenile if it's very close to a much larger, say, mastodon that could have really caused a lot of problems for the predator. You know, mammoths that were age two to four would have been especially vulnerable because this is a time where they're still relatively small, but they're actually spending a lot of time apart from their parents. So taking all this stuff together, the researchers found that indeed it seems like these ancient predators could have actually attacked a lot of these large, what are called megafauna, and in fact may have killed about 17% of young mastodons and other mega herbivores. So that sounds like a pretty significant impact, Dave. 
Yeah, especially when you think about this idea that you know herbivores can have a very dramatic impact on their ecosystem. They eat a lot of vegetation, which means they're removing vegetation that maybe other animals need. When they die or are killed, their meat can actually serve a lot of smaller animals. So if we know that a lot more of these mega herbivores were being killed than we thought, that actually means that the carnivores at the time may have been having a much larger impact on some of these ancient ecosystems than scientists thought. So does this study have implications for modern large herbivore populations? Well, it could. When we think about things like conservation, we really have to get a sense of what these dynamics are between predator and prey, even if it's very large prey. And one of the experts we talked to for the story said that, you know, if we understand more about how these ancient predator-prey dynamics may have played out, we may actually be able to apply that to some modern predator-prey situations, and then may actually feed into some conservation strategies. Interesting. So for our final story this week, a lot of adults want to make new friends, but they don't know where to start. Common advice includes, why don't you take a class? Well, researchers have actually put three different types of leisure time classes to the test to see which promotes the most social bonding. What was the winner, Dave? <laughs> the winner was singing classes. And it's kind of uh, surprising because you would figure all these classes are situations where students would be interacting with other students in a variety of ways. But when the researchers did the study and they actually looked at 100 volunteers that were taking part in two-hour singing, art, or creative writing classes at community centers in the UK, uh, what they did was at one, three, and seven months, the researchers asked the students to rate how closely bonded they felt to the other students in their class on the seven-point scale. And they found that just after a month, those in the singing class were reporting being nearly two points closer bonded to their classmates versus those in the other classes were only about 0.5 points closer bonded to their classmates, suggesting that there's something about the singing class which seems to help people form closer bonds, at least in a shorter time period. What the researchers found was that after seven months, all the students in all the classes reported about the same level of bonding to their fellow students. Interesting. So how do they account for this sort of early power of singing to bring people together? Well, there's this idea that singing maybe breaks the ice. First of all, it requires the whole group to participate. You can imagine if you're in a creative writing class, maybe you're doing a little bit of workshopping or you're sharing notes with one of your classmates, but it's not necessarily a full group activity. Whereas if you're in a singing class, everybody's kind of singing at the same time. Maybe they're exposing all their vulnerabilities at the same time, but certainly there's a lot more cohesiveness happening. And that may explain why people are much quicker to bond with those around them. Interesting. But there are other activities that I would think would encourage bonding as well, like acting, for instance or even sports. And that is one of the criticisms of the study raised by one of the uh, experts we spoke to was this idea that there really aren't enough controls here, that we need to look at other classes, other activities, even other educational activities where you would have a lot of people that need to engage in the same activity at the same time, like, for example, sports. And that might tell us whether there's something specific to singing or whether it's just sort of more an effect of just a large group of people trying to do the same thing at the same time. Right. Okay. So are there any practical applications to this research? Well, you can imagine you're the beginning of a school year or maybe the beginning of a business meeting where you have a lot of people getting together that may not necessarily know each other. 
one way to break the ice and potentially get everybody on friendlier terms is to make them all sane. We'll see if that uh, actually flies with some of the people in these <laughs> business meetings. All right, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Suzanne, we've got a story about the first sonic tractor beam using sound waves to levitate and rotate objects in midair. Also a story about the connection between allergy and parasites in our environment. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got an investigation into a controversial chronic fatigue study. Also a story about why China is making dramatic gains in public health. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Suzanne. David Grimm is the editor for our daily news site. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. The Amazon Basin of South America is celebrated for its stunning diversity of plants and animals. But what were the forces that drove the evolution of so many species? In July, Science's Latin America correspondent Lizzie Wade joined a group of National Science Foundation-funded scientists and their students in Peru as they sought answers to this complicated question. I'm Suzanne Bard. The Amazon Basin is one of the most biodiverse places in the world, probably the most diverse depending on how you measure. And the Western Amazon, which is the part of the Amazon that's in Peru, is the most diverse region within that already incredible amount of diversity. And their idea was to start to examine the geological history of the Western Amazon, the rise of the Andes Mountains, which is a very high mountain range along the west coast of South America. And they're interested in sort of making connections between that geology and the biodiversity we see in the cloud forests along the slopes of the Andes, as well as in the lowland Amazon basin today, sort of when that biodiversity started accumulating and what events in the past contributed to it. So give me a sense of the biodiversity of the Amazon basin, Lizzie. The biodiversity of the Amazon basin is really astounding, even compared to other tropical rainforests around the world. It's by far the most biodiverse even of those ecosystems. The basin itself is a little less than 7 million square kilometers vague, and it contains at least 10% of the species that we know on the planet of all kinds, you know, from trees to insects. And for example, in eastern North America, New England along the East Coast, you have about 300 tree species total. And in the Western Amazon, you'll have 300 tree species in a single hectare of rainforest. Wow. So set the scene for us a little bit, Lizzie. You got to join these scientists in Peru. What's it like to be there? And does the diversity of plants and animals that you're talking about, does it jump out at you? Or do you kind of have to know what you're looking for? In some places, the diversity really jumps out at you. So we did a hike down sort of the eastern foothills of the Andes through the cloud forest. And it was straight down a mountain for about 10 hours. And in those 10 hours, you go through at least three completely different ecosystems, plus many different kind of microclimates within them. And the species are just constantly changing. We started the day off on a barren grassland of the high Andes and ended it almost in the lowland rainforest. 
And you see a lot of changes in just that transect of a mountain. Once you get into the lowland rainforest, it's a little more complicated and you really do need to know what you're looking at because it's so dense. So, you know, you'll see these huge trees, especially trees of the fig family, vines. We saw quite a few monkeys. We were really lucky. They don't always see them. Um, There are also jaguars, which we didn't see. Lots of caimans, which sort of look like crocodiles. Giant river otters, lots of species that don't exist anywhere else in the world. But because the rainforest is so dense, you can't really see very far and you really have to have kind of a big picture view of it to appreciate the biodiversity there and of course high up in the Andes it's mostly grassland and lots of farms which has its own charm and its own biological interest but there you probably have five tree species in the whole mountain. Wow okay so this 10-hour hike that you took that sounds kind of grueling what was it like? It was very grueling, especially when you're trying to run along behind ecologists and geologists who do this kind of thing all the time for a living. (laughs) And I live in a very big city and don't hike down big mountains very often. It was very hard and very slippery. It's a trail, but calling it a path is probably overstating it. And so in the part of the Amazon basin you were in, in Manu National Park, How isolated is that and how did the scientists get there? And is it a place that's threatened by deforestation or is it fairly pristine? What's it like there? So Banu National Park is a really huge protected area in Peru. There's part of it that's in the cloud forest and extends well into Peru's part of the Western Amazon. And you can tell when you enter the park that something's different. There's a lot less evidence of logging, both legal and illegal. So the trees are a lot denser, a lot more animals coming kind of out on the banks on these beaches. You know, we saw jaguar tracks, lots and lots of turtles, lots and lots of caimans, some capybaras, which are some really big rodents. And the way you get around is by river. So you're on these flat bottom boats throughout the Amazon and it can be quite slow and very leisurely. It was really beautiful. And the park itself is is pretty protected. There's a part of Mono National Park The last town on the way in is called Bokomanu. That's where they check you for all your permits and to make sure you have necessary shots because this is an area where lots of isolated tribes live. And if they were to catch, you know, for example, the flu, it could really be devastating for those communities that don't have any exposure or immunity. Then there's part of the park that you can go to as a tourist. And then there's sort of a further part of the park that you only can go to as a scientist with special research permits. And that's where we were able to go all the way to a research station called Kochikashu near a particular lake. And it's a well-developed campsite. There are scientists at least throughout the dry season and some probably all year round, but there's no settlers. It's really just the scientists who are there and any tribes that happen to live around there. Okay, so let's get back to explaining all the speciation and biodiversity of the Amazon basin. How do scientists explain it, and what do they generally agree on? So scientists generally agree that the sort of major geological events that caused all the speciation probably took place somewhere around the Miocene epoch, which is about 23 million years to about 5 million years ago. So at that time, there was a really diverse rainforest in the Amazon already. How much it looked like today's rainforest is a matter of debate, but there was a lot of biodiversity back then and maybe even more than there is today. And it was also an incredibly geologically convulsive and active time. Just what those convulsions looked like is something that the scientists disagree on. 
Okay, so there's also a major disagreement about what supercharged speciation in the Amazon. What are the main competing hypotheses? So the leading one is based on this idea of, it's called a marine incursion, which is basically an invasion of the sea very deep inland. And this one probably would have come from the Caribbean, although there is some debate on you know, where this might have originated. But in the Miocene, sea levels were a lot higher. The Andes were going through at least their kind of first growth birth, if not much more extreme growth. And that weight kind of depressed the rest of the continent, kind of like a seesaw. So you have, you know, the northern coast of South America kind of sinking down into a sea that was much higher than it is today. And the result is that the Caribbean Sea kind of poured in to the western Amazon. So sort of throughout Ecuador, Peru, I think people once thought it might have been an actual inland sea. But now the leading proponents of that hypothesis kind of postulated as more of like an estuary or a wetland that's pretty salty. But as the sea rushed in and maybe went out and it sort of happened over and over again throughout millions of years, so sometimes it would have been saltier, sometimes it would have been more freshwater, exactly where islands were located probably changed a lot as the levels of water fell and rose and flooded and So that's a really dynamic environment and creates a lot of opportunity for competition between species and a lot of pressure to adapt over and over again. So you have species like the Amazon River Dolphin, which they point to as strong evidence that the sea once reached this far inland. The idea is that saltwater habitat expanded, the dolphins followed the saltwater, then suddenly they're in this estuary, it's getting fresher, and a lot of pressure to adapt pretty quickly and potentially over and over again to a changing situation like that. And that could have really driven up speciation in the Miocene. And that's sort of the traces that we're seeing today. The other idea has more to do with the Andes. And everyone agrees that the Andes are an incredibly important geological and environmental event for South America that basically shaped the climate and the landscape for the whole continent. But this other group believes that The Western Andes, there's sort of two parallel mountain ranges within the Andes, and they believe that the Western one, which is volcanoes, are very, very old, at least 65 million years old. And they think that as soon as you got high peaks, you started getting different microclimates, you start getting species that adapt to very narrow strips of the mountain range and sort of change as they go up and down. You get a way for species from more temperate climates to migrate sort of across the top of the mountain and then adapt their way down into the Amazon basin, and it just becomes an incredibly biologically dynamic place. And their idea is that the Andes probably reached their current height much earlier than most geologists have supposed until now, and that sort of seeded a lot of freshwater rivers. So this version of the western Amazon would also have been quite wet, and there would have been a lot of wetlands, but it all would have been freshwater coming off of the Andes, which is the kinds of rivers that we see today. Okay, so what's some really strong evidence for and against both of these hypotheses? So the evidence for marine incursions started coming really quite strongly in the early 90s with the PhD thesis of a geologist named Karina Horn, who works in the Netherlands. She turned up all of these fossilized plankton, basically, in sediments from the western Amazon. And for a long time, scientists had also been finding fossilized mollusk shells and other kind of things that suggested that there was some kind of marine influence. But with Horn's work, it really became like a codified theory. She found mangrove pollen. Mangroves, of course, grow in salty water along coasts today. 
And people started looking at different sedimentary structures and saying, okay, we see evidence of tides, the kind of sediments that oceans would deposit. Now, other scientists look at those same sediments and say, no, this looks exactly like a river. This is exactly what we see today in the sediments. You're completely wrong about this being tides. There are a lot of species of this stuff that live in fresh water. So they say, you can't use this to say this was definitely a marine environment when they live in fresh water as well. Some scientists are now doing analyses of fossilized shells, and they say that they see a clear signal in the ratio of different kinds of isotopes. They say that signal clearly states to them that these shells formed in a freshwater environment. And they also question what the evolutionary history of mangrove trees in the past might they have lived in fresher water than they do today, things like that. And there are really strong evidences coming from the geology of the Andes as well. As, um, there was clearly a very fast uplift of the eastern Andes between 10 and 5 million years ago. But the western Andes, which is the ones they're really interested in, have been quite hard to date because the way that volcanoes grow, there's no real time for soils to form and there's not a lot of traces of past environments, or at least the kind of evidence that geologists have been able to use elsewhere. So now they're starting to look at chemical isotopes preserved in volcanic glass, and that volcanic glass can preserve rainwater, and that might give them some clue to what elevation the Western Andes were at at different times. But that work is really just beginning. All right. And tell me more about what you saw when you were up at the top of the Andes. So the Andes are an incredible environment, and they've been inhabited by people for a really long time. That was really striking to me because it's quite extreme. I mean, it's very cold, especially at night because you're at four-kilometer elevations. The sun goes down. It gets below freezing within five minutes. The air is very thin. But there's lots of farms, lots of people, lots of towns, lots of mining, which people there feel very conflicted about, and lots of grass. So we hiked across lots of pretty grassy, dry hills in the Altiplano, which is the high plain between these two sort of higher chains of mountain peaks, which are covered in snow and glaciers. And one of the most striking things we saw was this fossilized tree. So there are some trees that grow today in the Andes, but it's mostly eucalyptus that was introduced. It's not a native species to that region. When you're walking around, you know, the native species that you see are like lichens and grass shrubs, stuff like that. And then suddenly in the middle of the plain, in the middle of this family's farm, actually, there is this huge fossilized tree. And it was just a fraction of the trunk, really. You could sort of see the buttress at the bottom, and then it was kind of broken off at the top. And you can see in that tree rings and some of the cellular structure. And even that was like 10 feet tall or something. It was really, really big. And it was very clear that there is nothing like that around in the Andes today. And that is a really, really striking piece of evidence for this rapid uplift of the eastern portion of the Andes, at least between 10 million and 5 million years ago. So this tree probably, based on the outcrops of limestone that are around it, geologists can date it to about 10, 9 million years ago. And so they know if that tree was growing there at 9 million years ago, there had to be a pretty lush forest. And those forests and those kinds of trees don't really grow above 2 kilometers. So the Andes were probably about half as high as they are today. And then the next time you have geological evidence of what elevation you're at, it's five million years later and you're at four kilometers elevation. And that's one of the mysteries these scientists are looking at resolving just how that part of the Andes grew so, so quickly. Right, right. Okay. What role does genetics play in trying to work all this out? 
So in the Amazon basin, there's not a lot of rock. You have to drill very deep for it. It's incredibly hard to get to. These places are incredibly remote. You can study the same cow crops over and over again, but at this point, you're going to have diminishing returns on the information that you can get out of them. So that kind of lack of geological features makes Amazon Basin a really good candidate for using these kind of new approaches that incorporate genomics to look at environmental history. So you'll have some of the tree species in the Amazon are very, very ancient and very, very widespread. So there's this one tree in particular that the scientist named Christopher Dick was sampling when I was there. It's called Pusenia armada, and it's covered with these tiny little spikes all over its bark, its leaves, even its buds, which makes it really easy to identify. And it grows basically from Peru, where we were, up on the other side of the Andes and Ecuador, up to Panama, you know, so it's, it's incredibly widespread. And it's not a species that moves around very well. It sort of stays put and animals disperse its seeds kind of close to where the tree already is. So it's not really a tree that could climb over the Andes once they were built or even really move around them. So that points to the idea that this tree species was probably growing in these regions before the Andes rose. And so by sampling the genomes of the trees on either side of the Andes, you can see at a certain point they start taking different evolutionary paths and kind of accumulating rand mutations in their DNA, and scientists know how fast that tends to happen, so they can sort of dial back that clock and look at when the species formed one continuous population and therefore kind of help date the rise of the Andes. So they can say, okay, the trees were one continuous population up until X number of years ago, and then they start diverging very slightly. They're still the same species. And so they can say, okay, we, we know a barrier must have arisen around then, and oh, look at that, we have the Andes. This must be a sign of the Andes rising. And this work is really just beginning, but it offers a really good kind of alternative way to test geological hypotheses that scientists might not be able to resolve using only the limited geological data that they can get from this environment. So Lizzie, it sounds like the question of where all this biodiversity comes from is still going to take quite a bit of work to figure out. What are the scientists doing next? So they'll take the data that they collected from these different environments back to their labs and start applying really a lot of new techniques to them. So, you know, the Western Andes are sampling this volcanic glass that can preserve rainwater deposited at different elevations and kind of start to reconstruct the environmental history of that mountain range, the genetics of Pulsania and also 84 other tree species that have a similar growth pattern and seeing they kind of converge on a date for the rise of the Andes. People will be looking at these sedimentary structures and really dig into that data and analyze it. And they'll just keep coming back. They'll keep sampling for microfossils, which are small shells, plankton, stuff like that. And so the field work is ongoing. It's quite a challenging place to work, but these scientists are committed to it. And the field work happens in the dry season, which is over the summer, and the rest of the year they're back in their labs analyzing what they found. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Lizzie. Thank you. Science correspondent Lizzie Wade writes about the origins of the Amazon's stunning biodiversity this week in science. 
And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.